The return of Jesus Christ is one of those topics in the Bible that is both endlessly complex and yet profoundly simple in its realities. And this morning, as we look at what Peter says about the return of Christ, he will not answer every question we might have about the second coming, but he says things that are so important for how we conceive of and live in our sojourn today. So here from God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at this, your word, in all of its wonder and beauty, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us and feed us in just the ways we need this hour and this day. We pray that you would do that in your faithfulness and in your love for us, your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Eleven years ago, my wife and I were living in San Diego, California. I was in my second year of seminary there, and life felt, uh, felt a bit fragile, a bit on edge. Uh, my wife had just quit her job as a teacher and was in transition looking for new work. As a result of that transition, we decided to, uh, to, to tighten our budget a bit and downsize from our two-bedroom apartment into a, a small studio apartment above a family's garage. No air conditioning, uh, very small. Some of you might call it an attic, <laughs> but for us it was home. And a few weeks after we moved in there, all cozy, uh, my wife sat down on the bed next to me early one morning and uh, gently touched my arm and with a twinkle in her eye and a smile on her face said, I'm pregnant. And I said, really? <laughs> you sure? For her, it was a dream come true, right? The longing to be a, a mother fulfilled. 
For her, those next months then were filled with the joys of sonograms and baby showers and decorating and all that nesting that expectant mothers enjoy. For me, the next months were filled with the anxiety of a new budget and a new apartment, of all those fears that first-time fathers feel in their nervousness. While our reactions were different, for both of us, the, the expecting of our first child became the gravitational center of life, right? It, it immediately and radically transformed our, our time, uh, our money, our prayers, our thoughts and emotions. In a similar way, the return of Jesus Christ, that, that future event, is the gravitational center of our lives as believers in this present age. It's that future event which which orients us and pulls us to see the purposes of God and the significance of our lives. It's that event which forms and shapes us. Today we're going to see how our sojourn's end orients us as God's people. And in particular, as Peter writes, you'll notice that Peter's agenda in this passage is not uh, playing the role of a prophet who will tell us exactly when and where and how the end will come. He's not playing the role of a, a teacher or a life coach telling us exactly what to do, how to get ready exactly. He's doing what Jesus does when he talks about the second coming. He's doing what John does when he writes about the second coming of Christ. He's being a pastor. He's being a pastor speaking to our hearts and to our lives, longing that they would be formed after the promises of God and His great works. And so Peter, in verse 11, you see it plainly right there. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in light of Christ's coming, what sort of people ought you to be? So how does Peter answer his own question in this passage? In light of Christ's return, who should we be as God's people? Well, first, Peter calls us to be waiting people, to be people waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. You see, especially in verses 10 through 13, Peter twice uses this language of waiting for the day of God and then waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 12, Peter says, we ought to be people waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. The day of God, or what Peter earlier in verse 10 calls the day of the Lord, is the day of Christ's physical return from heaven to earth. Throughout the Bible, the the day of the Lord is used as a term to describe great events in redemptive history in which God breaks in and brings judgment and destruction to God's enemies and rescue and deliverance to God's people, purging the evil promoting the good. In the Old Testament, the classic uh, example of this is the Exodus. The Exodus, that great day of the Lord in which Pharaoh and Israel's oppressors are consumed in the waters of the Red Sea, and yet God's people delivered safely to enter the promised land. In the same way, the day of Christ's return, that, that greatest day of the Lord, will be a day in which God's 
enemies are judged, in which the evil of this world is purged, and yet a day in which we, as God's people, are rescued and saved and delivered. In describing this day, Peter uses some dramatic imagery, therefore. Dramatic imagery, he he takes up this apocalyptic style of writing, a style that prophets of the Old Testament use, and John in Revelation uses, a style of writing where he's using images, dramatic images, to help us imagine what certain future events will be like. Peter describes the day of Christ's return with cosmic imagery, describing uh, the dissolving of the heavens, how the heavens will roar and burn and melt and then dissolve. And he avoids a precise explanation of exactly what he means by all those things. But it's almost as if, whether literal or figurative, it almost doesn't matter. It it does, but not completely, because what we know from Peter is that on that great day, there will be significant change significant and dramatic climax. We know that the heavens and the earth that we see now will be no more. Almost instinctively, the question you and I ask is, when, right? When will these things be? Well, Peter and the other disciples asked that exact same question in Matthew 24, when Jesus started talking about his return, when Jesus started talking about the dissolving of the heavens. They said, when will these things be, Master? And Peter gives us the answer that Jesus first gave to him in this passage. When will these things be? It's a surprise. It's going to be a surprise. Yes, there are certain warning signs that that Jesus described like birth pains anticipating that great day, and yet ultimately, exactly, we we don't know. It'll come like a thief in the night. That's the metaphor Jesus used. It's the metaphor that Peter uses here. Now, for us as God's people, that does not mean that we live fearing that day. We don't live in dread of that day as if something evil is going to happen to us. God has promised that the day of the Lord will bring judgment and purging for all that is evil, but deliverance for those who are His own. God's promised that the day of the Lord will bring a new heavens and a new earth. You see it in verse 13. This is the second thing that Peter calls us to be waiting for. He says, but according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That language of the new heavens and new earth is language that Isaiah first introduced 600 years before Peter's life, that Peter then takes up, um, and that John later in Revelation will take up and explain in, in more detail. We don't know exactly what this new heavens and new earth will be like, but we have a, we have a beautiful introduction to it in John's uh, epistle in Revelation. Revelation 21, if you have your Bible, turn there. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, John describes what this new heavens and new earth will be like. He writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Peter tells us to be waiting for that great day, waiting for that new heavens and earth. And John would tell us by his explanation that we should be eager for two main things on that great day. Number one, to be with God, to dwell with God as his people and he as our God. That's what John celebrates in that vision in Revelation 21, dwelling with God perfectly, permanently, and at peace. And the second great thing that John encourages us with is that promise that on that great day, all suffering will end. Our world is filled with, filled with suffering, with sin, with sadness, with sickness, with death, all consequences of God's holy curse and just curse for us because of sin entering the world. And how we respond to suffering, how we respond to it is a universal question. In general, in the West, we seek to overcome the problem of suffering by forming institutions and initiatives. In general, in the East, people seek to escape suffering by achieving an enlightened state of being. But neither of those is a final fix, because suffering doesn't just exist out there, it exists in here. It's within us because of our own fallen nature and our own sin, and so neither of those methods can finally or permanently help us remove suffering from our lives. The only way of overcoming and escaping suffering in this world is by seeing how God himself entered into our suffering. That through his son, Jesus Christ, he entered into our suffering and took on the suffering of all God's people. He came to suffer for us by dying on the cross. He rose again from death proving that He, Jesus Christ, is God, proving that He has conquered sin and suffering forever. And while we still, here and now, suffer certain effects of the fall, certain effects of sin and suffering in this world, the day is coming when Jesus will return. And so we, the people of God, are waiting people, eagerly waiting being watchful for the day of the Lord, the day of that great judgment and purging and change and eager for that great day. Because on that day, a new heavens and a new earth, dwelling with God, free and perfect. So Peter calls us to be waiting people. He also calls us to be preparing people. Verses 14 through 18, Peter calls us to prepare for the great day of the Lord. Be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you have seen the television show on uh, National Geographic Channel called Doomsday Preppers. Doomsday Preppers. It's as interesting as it sounds. The, the, the plot of the show, basically, it's a kind of a documentary where uh, the network goes and interviews uh, different people who are preparing themselves and their families for some sort of doomsday scenario. Not doomsday as in the end of the world and all things, but doomsday as in some kind of dramatic change in civilization as we know it right now. It might be nuclear war. It might be 
a, uh, the, the failure of the electric grid. It might be a great famine or natural disaster, a great health epidemic or economic collapse. Depending on their doomsday theory, different these people uh, are stockpiling food and water, weapons, and seeds, fuel, money, medicine. It doesn't take long. If you watch just one episode, you'll realize two things pretty quickly. Number one, we're not prepared, right? <laughs> None of us are prepared in the way that these people are preparing. Uh, and it's, we have an automatic disadvantage because we live in a city. We don't have a bomb shelter in Montana. Uh, so we're already vulnerable. But number two, you realize very quickly these people are living in fear. They're living in fear for what's unsure, for a future that's not certain. Peter's not calling us to prepare for the day of the Lord in fear because of what could be. Peter's calling us to prepare for the day of the Lord by faith for what will be. For what will be. It's certain. It's sure. And so we prepare, first of all, by being in Christ. Verse 14, Peter introduces this. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you're awaiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. To be found by God without spot, without blemish. Peter is using this Old Testament sacrificial language of a sacrifice acceptable to God that is pure and spotless and without blemish. On our own, we can't achieve that. We can't be pure and spotless in God's sight. We can't be at peace before God's holy presence. This, this vision of shalom that Peter is uh, describing on our own, the vision that Peter establishes, the way of being diligent and preparing in that way, it's a bar too high for us. It's impossible for us to be spotless and without blemish in the sight of a holy God. So why does Peter set the bar that high? Why does he create a standard that's unattainable for us in ourselves? Well, he does it so that we would not look within but without. Not look to ourselves, but to another. And he uses that language of a pure and spotless, free from blemish, uh, standing before God to point us back to Jesus. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 1 in your Bibles. And you read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. Peter uses those exact same words of being spotless and without blemish. He uses those exact same words about Jesus. He says in 1 Peter 1, 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is only in Christ that we can stand before God's presence on that great day because He is our sacrifice. All our deeds will be exposed when Jesus returns, he's told us. And the only way for God to look at us as pure, the only way for God to accept us at peace with him is by having Jesus take our place on that great day. He's done it already on the cross. And that's exactly the good news, the work of Jesus Christ for us 
our substitute, paying the penalty for sins on the cross. That's exactly what Peter is calling us to believe. He's not really calling us to be diligent in doing. He's been calling us to be diligent in believing, in trusting, in depending fully on Jesus Christ as our Savior. And Peter goes on in those next verses to describe uh, God's patience, God's patience for the purpose of salvation. God is delaying the return of Jesus Christ for the purpose of salvation of all God's people. For He has chosen people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be His own. And He is not being stubborn in sending Jesus back to end our suffering. He is being patient in sending Jesus back until His gospel is proclaimed to every corner of this world. And Jesus promises that when His gospel is proclaimed, Globally, and all God's people have come and trusted in Him, then the end comes. And so we as God's people today, God has entrusted us with this gospel. He's entrusted us with this message. And He is waiting. He's being patient so that we would extend the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ to all nations, to all people. He's giving us time to hear Time to understand, time to believe the good news of the gospel. Peter also tells us to prepare by not only being in Christ by faith and proclaiming the gospel of Christ with boldness, but, but also to be growing in Christ. If you look down in these last verses, 16, 17, 18, especially verse 18, we read that Peter longs for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, Peter's not a fire and brimstone preacher who's trying to fearfully squeeze one desperate prayer of confession and faith out of us. He's a gospel preacher who points us to the Word of God, to the Word of God which calls those who trust in Christ to bear the fruit of righteousness in their lives, to prove their faith with a changed heart and changed life. And to continue growing, growing according to the gifts that He has entrusted to us, growing in the gift of God's Word, knowing God's Word, trusting God's Word, believing God's Word, so that we would not be deceived when others preach a different gospel or say something else about Christ's return. We grow through the Word. It's one of the great heritages of the Protestant Reformation, which we celebrate this fall, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg and beginning a great recovery, a great return to the source for the Christian church, the source of the Bible, that we, God's people, would be equipped in the Scriptures, not being deceived by those who would twist them. So just a brief application, thinking about this coming months, life in this church. We have men's ministries and women's ministries, small groups, midweek, all these different opportunities for you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that in every activity, in every ministry that you hear about, the Word of God is central. Praise God that we have a church that's, that's got laser vision sights on this. But how are you going to take advantage of it? 
What study or group or class will you lean into for the sake of knowing God's Word and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Leaders, as you think about leading your group or class, how are you preparing to feed God's people the nourishing food of God's Word? Not your own ideas, but the purity of the Word of God. So Peter calls us to wait for that great day of the Lord. He calls us to prepare for it and to be growing in Christ until that great day, just as Jesus described uh, a master returning to his servants at the end of the Gospel of Matthew 24 and 25, we're to be found being diligent, diligent workers, diligent servants, diligent stewards of the things God has entrusted to us. And finally, at the last At the end of this great passage, at the end of Peter's letters, this last sentence of the book, Peter calls us to be worshiping people. In light of the return of Jesus Christ, in light of what will be, he calls us to have a focus on the worship and the glory of God. Here's what he says in verse 18. Speaking of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Peter writes, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. If there is one thing that we as a church must learn from this last year thinking about sojourn, it's this. Our sojourn is not about us. It's not about our church. It's not about our city. It's about God and His glory. Our sojourn's end is the glory of God. The Bible tells us that when Jesus returns on that great day, every eye will see Him and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we will see that all God has made and all God has done is for His honor, for His praise, for His glory. And we will worship Him. Listen to how John describes it in Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verse 11, he says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. How our hearts long and ache to be a part of that worship. They long and ache to be a part of that great day because that's what we're made for. That's why God created us. That's why God's brought us on this sojourn, is to form us as His people, His worshiping people, for His glory. It's what we've been made for, to be God's people, brought into God's place, living at peace under God's rule, and giving worship to Him with all that we are, forever and ever. Peter's last words to us in this book point us to Jesus. 
and to his glory. And Jesus' last words in the Bible point us to his return. Revelation 22.20, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And so may we, the people of God, be longing for that great day, oriented around that great day, waiting, preparing, worshiping, and saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. God, we long for the day of Christ's coming. We long for the day of being with you in your presence. We long for the day of being free from the sin and suffering of our own hearts and of this world. Father, we praise you that you have made a way possible for us to enjoy and be present in that great day. You have given us Jesus. I pray this morning if there are those here who have never trusted in Jesus, who don't know what it means to repent and believe in the gospel of Christ, that you by your Holy Spirit would minister to their hearts even now, for today is the day of salvation. We pray that you would soften hard hearts. We pray that you would give sight to blind eyes. Father, we pray that more and more as a church and as individuals and as families that you would orient our lives around the day of Christ's coming, that we would hope for and long for and watch for and be prepared for that great day. We long for it, O Father. May it come quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.